0: I'm double checking, making sure I remember how to do all this. Okay, so I'll give you a chance to introduce yourself and all that kind of stuff, and I'll have just a couple of introductory things to say, since it is the first one back since yeah. uh, June? I don't I don't know the last time we recorded, to be honest. It's been yeah. a long time. You know what? I kind of forgot that Emily Blunt was in this movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I I don't know why. Uh, I, I think I pictured a different actress in my mind. Right. But it's Emily Blunt in all her glory. She's great.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and it was before she was
0: a huge thing, so... Yeah, this um, would have been, what, two years before Edge of Tomorrow? Yeah. And I'm not saying that was necessarily her breakout, but it was certainly a contributing factor. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Okay. I've seen Rise of Skywalker two more times. Yeah. And I've liked it more each time. Good. It's it's not like climbing and ranking, but it is climbing an opinion. So that's, that's a good thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. I feel like that's kind of a, our Josh and I's take on it, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we both we both agree that it's our least favorite of the sequel trilogy,
0: mm-hmm. for sure.
1: Um, but we still like it, and it, it has grown definitely as we've seen it more, which is which is nice.
0: <laughs> yeah, my my first time out of the theater seeing it, I, I thought you know I liked it, but and then I just had all these things that just kind of bothered me and irked me about it, and the overwhelming feeling over the days that passed was just sort of disappointment. And again, I still thought I liked it, but it was just like man. Man, I liked Last Jedi so much, and then you did this. You know, it was it was just like a, a feeling of disappointment from JJ. But I I, th- I think I've reneged a little bit on certain things. Yeah. I, I think that m- not everything was necessarily a tear down of the Last Jedi, and he did continue some things pretty nicely. But I, I'm just glad that my second and third watchings, it didn't like linger with me as much, which I think right. is fine. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean it so. was
1: it, it was kind of it was tough for me too because I'm a big Ryan Johnson fan and and love The Last Jedi. And mm-hmm. I feel like The Last Jedi was a film that I could personally enjoy without caveat. Um right. like I think it was a, actually a great film, not just a great Star Wars movie. Right, right. Um, Same. And so yeah, so then I came into this and it's like it's kind of going back it's taking me back to actually some of the prequel era films where I'm like, okay, like I enjoy this, but I have to recognize <laughs> that there are some things here.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, both you and I were we're around the age of, you know, we were those kids who grew up watching Phantom Menace and all those, you know. Right. Uh, I was seven when that came out. I, I think we're close to the same age, right? Yeah, I was nine when Phantom. Yeah, came I thought I thought it was, I thought we were pretty close. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, I remember that episode of How I Met Your Mother where there's like a cutoff date for people who like the Ewoks versus don't like the Ewoks. It's like <laughs> if you're born after a certain year or something like that. And I feel that's where we are with the prequel trilogy. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay, well, let's go ahead and transition into things. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna leave with some of that in because that's fun. So, everybody, welcome back to Cinescope. (laughs) Uh, It's been a while. I don't feel like looking up how long it's been right now, because I'll sort of disappoint myself. But the important thing is we are back, and we are back with Blaine. So, uh, Blaine, how about you introduce yourself again, tell us about yourself, all that kind of stuff, to get us started.
1: Yeah, well, I'm Blaine Grimes. I am the co-host of a Star Wars podcast called Home One Radio. We talk about Star Wars week in and week out all throughout the year. And we we're a Star Wars podcast that where the two hosts really enjoy Star Wars. So we don't enjoy tearing <laughs> tearing Star Wars down. We're very much kindred spirits with Cinescope in the sense that we just like to celebrate the Star Wars movies. We like to celebrate movies and, and just enjoy things. So yeah, I feel like we're good kindred spirits there, but that's that's kind of where you can find my work and, and maybe where you've you've heard me from if
0: you've heard me from anywhere else. Yeah. Enjoying things. What a concept. Right. Crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one more quick Star Wars question, just while we're on the subject. (laughs) Yeah. I am wanting to get more into like reading the books. What's a good first Star Wars book to read to sort of expand my knowledge? So there are, are you much for YA novels usually at Uh, all? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Every once in a while. Yeah. I'm
1: I'm not terribly usually but one of my favorite star wars books canon star wars books still to this day is lost stars by claudia gray okay it's just telling it's it's a really good story that ends up kind of tying in with the sequel trilogy in some in some you know subtle ways this was a book that was written leading into the force awakens so we didn't have all of this material that we do now but it's still just it's a great book um and completely surpassed all expectations i had for it um, that's written by Claudia Gray, and actually another one that, that I recommend to newcomers <laughs> is um, another Claudia Gray novel that's uh, that's an adult novel called Bloodline, and it's really fascinating because it kind of dives into some of the politics of Leia creating the Resistance, what led Leia to create the Resistance, and what the state of the New Republic looked like after um, Return of the Jedi, and it's it's just a really great kind of political thriller, almost, and little Ben Solo is in it too so that's fun so either one of those Claudia Gray books I feel like is a really good starting point for somebody wanting to get in Star Wars
0: okay well thanks for that I will add both of those to my good yeah. needs list and uh, hopefully everybody else finds some uh, nugget there too Now, before we transition into our main movie discussion, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the hiatus and sort of what I've been doing. Uh, Hopefully, you've known what I've been doing because you've been following along. Uh, We had The Office podcast. It was called An American Workplace. And when I started that show with my friend Katie, I did not expect the sort of reaction that we would get for that show. And just to put it lightly, it it was popular. (laughs) And... It went really well. And so it, it became a priority of, okay, well, Cinescope, I love talking about movies, but it gets a couple hundred downloads an episode versus an American workplace, which gets a lot more than that. And so when it, when it came down to the nitty gritty and scheduling things, American workplace took place, but we wrapped up talking about every single episode, all 201 of them of the office Uh, We recorded 108 of our own episodes, lots of bonus stuff. And we still have a couple wrap-up things to record. But now that that is out of the way, I'm just really excited to be back to talking about movies. Because as much as I love The Office, it's one of my favorite things ever to talk about. I'm looking forward to the variety that Cinescope brings me again. And uh, I mean, I think the last movie we talked about, or at least one of the last ones, was like The Karate Kid or something like that. And so now we're talking about Looper and those are so very different. And the next movie we talk about is going to be different again. So I I just love that Cinescope and talking about movies brings me back to talking about lots of different things rather than one thing over a stretch of time. So Cinescope is back. If you came from an American workplace, I would love if you would shout out because it means that you appreciate what I'm doing And if you haven't left a review for Cinescope on Apple Podcasts, please do that so we can get the show back on its legs. And if you have already written a review for Cinescope, please consider sharing with people so we can start building that audience again and maybe get to those American workplace numbers. So that's all the introductory stuff. I want to talk about Looper now because I just finished watching it like 20 minutes ago and it was my first time in a long time to watch this. And I am just like, champing at the bit to talk about it with you, Blaine.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was going to say, it's really exciting for me too. I mean, like doing a week, a weekly Star Wars podcast. I mean, I could talk about Star Wars all day, every day and do a lot of the time, but it's always kind of refreshing to get to talk about something a little bit outside of the normal scope of things. So yeah, very excited about this and to get to, you know, talk about a Star Wars alum, you know,
0: a film from a Star Wars alum now is uh,
1: a nice, like six degrees from Kevin Bacon sort of experience. (laughs)
0: Let's go ahead and transition into talking about Looper. Uh, so it released on September 28th of 2012, was directed by Ryan Johnson, who also directed Brick, The Brothers Bloom, Star Wars The Last Jedi, and most recently Knives Out. It was written by Johnson, and the music here is by Nathan Johnson, who's Ryan's cousin. He composed everything in Ryan's filmography, plus The Day I Saw Your Heart, Don John Young One's kill the messenger. And worth noting, he did not compose a score for Star Wars, The Last Jedi because (laughs) John Williams. (laughs) Now this movie does star Bruce Willis, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Emily Blunt, Noah Segan, Paul Dano, Jeff Daniels, and Piper Parabo. So as we did in days of old, Blaine, what is your first experience with Looper that you remember at least?
1: You know I remember I went to go see this with a couple of friends. Uh, one of the friends was a was already a big Ryan Johnson fan and was always telling me, "Oh, you've got to see Brick. Brick is the best. I love Brick. Everything was about Brick." And I this was my first Ryan Johnson movie, Looper was. Going to the theater, kind of going in, I'd seen trailers and everything, but other than that, I was kind of going in cold as far as knowing any of uh Ryan Johnson's other other works. And I remember from the trailers it being marketed as a as a kind of a big action movie that starred Bruce Willis, obviously, and so they were really playing it up as an action movie, a time travel sci-fi action movie, something that was kind of trying to mess with your mind, have a lot of big action set pieces, all of those things, and and so obviously after seeing the movie, uh, Looper has some of those great action sequences, but it, in my mind, it's much more of an emotional journey and very character centered, and I remember. After seeing it, just really not knowing what to do with it at that time. It wasn't that I disliked the movie, but I was just like, huh, that was not only different from what I expected, but that was just kind of different from things I've seen that are quote-unquote similar. But somehow the movie worked its way inside my brain, and I, I couldn't stop thinking about it, wanted to see it again. I think I saw it one more time, maybe in theaters, and have seen it several times since then even up to present day it's just one that I've wanted to revisit um because it's one that that kind of latched itself on to me in a way and then it was the it was sort of the basis for me wanting to go out and, and then finally explore uh Ryan Johnson's other films which at that time were just um Brick and The Brothers Bloom so I was actually introduced to Ryan Johnson through Looper and then worked back from there and uh much to my friends delight I did really like and still do really like Brick in fact Brick just as of not to date us terribly, but just as of recording, in early 2020, just got a Kino Lorber Blu-ray release um, that I am really excited to dig into soon. It has some great special features. So yeah, this kind of made me. This is the movie that made me a a,
0: a Ryan Johnson fan. Made him someone that I was just on the lookout for
1: at that point in time.
0: You know, I was I was the same way. I did not know who Ryan Johnson was. Of course, t- 2012, I I was still pretty early in college and I hadn't podcasted at all at that point. And so it, I, I hadn't like sort of entrenched myself in the movie theater like I have sort of done since then. And so I just wasn't as aware of various directors unless it was like Steven Spielberg uh, at that point, even though I, I was a big movie fan. And so I remember being on Twitter at the time and seeing people talking about, oh, Ryan Johnson's new film, oh, Brick, all this kind of stuff, and I I wasn't familiar with it, and I think what won me over in the marketing of this movie is what you were talking about. They they sort of did brand it as more of a time travel movie, and while there are elements of time travel, we know now that it's not really a time travel story, uh, but that was the hook that got me in, anyways, because you know I, I don't even have to like talk about Back to the Future on the show. Everybody knows, but that's that's what got me into the theater. So I do think I saw it in the theater. It was one of my favorites, if not my favorite, from that year. And like I said, my intro to Ryan Johnson as well. And it drove my interest. Like this film alone, I, I still haven't seen Brick or The Brothers Bloom. So that that Blu-ray sounds like a great opportunity to dive in. But Looper, like this one film, is so good <laughs> that I. Was jumping for joy when I saw that Ryan Johnson was directing The Last Jedi. And thankfully, that like super paid off. The Last Jedi is among my top two Star Wars films. I, I couldn't tell you a number one, but it's among the top two. <laughs> and I just recently saw Knives Out as well, and that was great too. So I mean, aside from this just being a great movie, this was my intro to one of our best current writers and directors in Ryan Johnson. So let, let's talk about that amazing writing in the story. Uh, is, is there like concept stuff? Is there a specific story stuff that really just sort of stands out to you in this?
1: Well, so I remember recently listening to an interview with Ryan Johnson uh, for *Knives Out*, actually, and for the life of me, I can't remember the specific interview or source. I tried to dig it back up, but I just couldn't find it, and I hate that because this is just such a great, great thing that this interviewer said. But, uh, but in that interview, the the interviewer act was was talking with Ryan Johnson and kind of asking him, "What what do you think is a Ryan Johnson movie or something like that?" <laughs> and uh, the interviewer, you know, Ryan asked the interviewer what what um, he thought a ryan johnson film was and the interviewer said something that i thought was really good he said a ryan johnson movie is having a specific genre or mode of storytelling gently and lovingly interrogated and i just thought that was (laughs) such an astute observation and i absolutely agree with that but at the same time i would like to add on top of that so this is an and also sort of thing Want to add to that formulation? I think not only is a Ryan Johnson film one that's lovingly interrogating a familiar genre, but it also mines the tropes and story conventions of a genre and finds the humanity in them, finds the human in them. All of Ryan Johnson's films showcase humanity in all of its beauty, its compassion, its greed, its depravity, its virtues, its vices, and and to me, that's what makes ryan johnson movie so compelling and so looper then is fascinating because it takes the conventions and trappings of science fiction and time travel movies and makes it a story about selfishness and love and identity and it does that while still being a a, like a time travel movie Mm -hmm. of sorts And so it still stays at home in its genre, even as it's kind of getting at maybe the essence of it or something. And so I think it makes, for me, it makes for a very uncanny viewing experience. And I think this is what I was kind of grappling with in a way I couldn't quite articulate when I saw the movie for the first time. But, like, so Freud's notion of the uncanny is that the uncanny is this, like, experience we have when we encounter something that is familiar yet strange and that's exactly what happens in Looper. Um, something presents itself as a science fiction film about time travel. And so in our minds, we're kind of set up to go, okay, I know how this works. I know what a, I know what a time travel movie looks like. I know the kinds of uh, tropes and, and conventions I'm expecting. But then it does things that we don't normally associate with the genre. So like one, we'll talk about plenty of examples as we go through. But one example would be like Joe's decision to turn in his friend Seth. I remember that floored me in the theater. When he just, when he decides to give him up and, you know, not lose out on his money or anything like that, because it's like, you don't abandon your friend. Right. Sort of thing. You're just kind sort of conditioned to expect that in this kind of narrative. You expect the hero to just be smart enough or fast enough or a good enough fighter to be able to get out of whatever situation they're in. And that's not what happens here. So it's things like that that, that really kind of uh, draw me to the storytelling
0: that, that we see here in Looper. Some of my favorite time travel elements that he did bring to the table here, uh, that are sort of turned on their head. Like, think of Back to the Future. The whole point is trying to avoid altering the future, whereas here they alter the future to like communicate with each other by writing on their arms. Yeah, you know, it's like such a weird (laughs) thing, self mutilation for the point of communication with the future. Like, it's a weird concept, but it works so well. They play with time in a couple of weird ways too like the very first time we're introduced to old joe bruce's character is when he escapes from having his loop closed and then immediately after that whole sequence we see the same scene again except we see how it was supposed to play out and we see the sort of creation of bruce willis joe and it's just this really great way of seeing okay like this is what happened. Oh, but this is what could have happened. And this is what sort of did happen. And then it brings them all together at a head as we're sort of exploring these characters and their minds are being altered. And it's just such a fascinating way of turning the genre on its head.
1: Yeah. I remember reading an interview where Ryan Johnson talked about the way he structured that narrative and how initially I think he, he had it written or he was toying with the idea of doing something that was kind of that was chronological, where you see Old Joe or you see Joe grow into Old Joe and then come back. But he f- he flipped that um so that because he said that if you if you did it the other way around then Old Joe sort of becomes the the de facto protagonist and that's not what he wanted to do with the story.
0: That's really fascinating.
1: Yeah, that's just like another one of those deliberate things where where I think Ryan Johnson just puts his characters at the heart of his story. Um and he's trying to do something with character. Um not just with cool narrative devices, even though there's plenty of that stuff in there.
0: I also think it's really interesting that this movie has, it's sort of a cynical view of the future. Uh, You've got this like really fascinating juxtaposition of the extreme poverty on the streets. There's violence. There's a kid who gets shot in the back because he is stealing something because clearly he needs to steal in order to like provide for himself or to eat or whatever, and it's just like, oh, well, you stole my stuff, so you're getting shot in the back. And then that's juxtaposed with Joe driving down the street in his fancy sports car and his fancy leather jacket and his fancy eye drugs that he gets because he kills people. And it's it's like this really cynical, like, wow, this is where we could be. And that's sort of one of the underlying messages of the film, too, is violence begets violence, right? And we see sort of the future of people if, if they focus all their efforts around violence and they center commerce around violence. And I, I, I thought that was really interesting too.
1: Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of Blade Runner influence. I feel like right, and just right. the, des- the design of, of the way the future looks and everything it's run down. It's dystopian crime rules. Like <laughs> crime is at the very center and the very heart of this movie. Um, so the, that's a fascinating thing to explore too.
0: Well, let's go ahead and just talk about the characters. Let's talk about like Joe, young joe uh Uh joseph gordon lovett so what stands out about him at least at the start to you well
1: i really like it's hard for me not to talk about the two joes (laughs) right separately but but it's just so interesting because young joe is set up as the as young joe the young foolish the young buck who uh is is making his way and making mistakes and Living his life the way he wants, and everything like that. And so he's set up as someone who needs he needs this this agent of change in his life. And again, like that's one of those familiar tropes that we're we're set up to expect, and we expect that it's going to go a certain way. um but i also I also have to talk a little bit about just Joseph Gordon Levitt, the way he is able to sort of, it's so fascinating because he's able to play a character that is then played by another actor another being another version of himself and that's Mm -hmm. just such an interesting like almost like a meta meta acting if you will and that's kind of a fascinating thing where we're seeing this character who we associate with someone else later on in the film and how he's able to kind of embody that that duality in a single role
0: is fascinating it is fascinating and like the the prosthetics that they use to sort of make him look like the younger Bruce Willis. Yeah. It's it's really really creative stuff and they pull it off so well.
1: Yeah, that kind of goes back to that uncanny thing that that I was talking about earlier. It's very strange. You're like, "Wait, that's Joseph Gordon-Levitt who looks like Bruce Willis."
0: <laughs> <laughs> as far as like his actual character goes, he you get this sort of sense of self-loathing from him. Uh it's underplayed at first he's telling us the whole story like this is why we're called loopers time travel has not yet been invented but 30 years from now it will have been i love that line by the way and when we start to see what his lifestyle is like the monotony of it the the party of it the drugs of it it, you just it's like an underlying self-hatred um and then we get this montage right after this party scene where he's not getting the companionship he wants he's saving up for a future that he may not get after he kills himself, like future self. And day after day after day, the same old thing, the same old thing. And it's just like cold-blooded killing. It doesn't matter who is under the mask because it's not my business. It's not my problem. I kill them. They technically don't exist. There's no blood on my hands. And you, you sense that he really just hates himself for it, you know?
1: Yeah, there's this strain of almost like Ecclesiastes from the Bible of someone going out and trying everything and doing everything to, to give themselves a sense of purpose. And it all just makes them feel all the more empty inside. As
0: we progress through the, the story, you know, he, you, you mentioned that moment where he turns over Seth. What do you think? I mean, obviously it's sort of a blowing up of your expectations, but what do you think that says about him in that moment?
1: He's fundamentally, he's a selfish character. He puts himself first. And so that kind of sets up a a seeming contradiction or a seeming discrepancy between young Joe and old Joe, because we're expecting old Joe to then be the one who is not as selfish, who is you know found love or found a purpose or what have you. Um, we think that he we think that he found love, um, and is and is turned away from that. And I think we'll talk about whether or not that turns out to be the case in a bit. But I think fundamentally that sets him up as as a as a self-centered character
0: it does he he's self centered he's all focused on the future for himself what he wants next in his life uh again he's killing people without thought or reason and then as he is introduced to his old self, we see a turning of the tables as you were just hinting towards is now old Joe is here, and he though he's coming with a message of like terror from the future and this is what happened to me and this is why I have to do what I have to do it's still ultimately coming from a place of selfishness and still young Joe is acting. So it's like they're acting selfish, which is really strange because they're the same person, but they're not the same <laughs> time travel, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I just think that's so, I, I hate to say interesting. I hate to say fascinating. It's so strange to see these two characters that are both acting in their own self-interest, which you think would be the same, but it's not. Right.
1: Well, and so that's another way that I feel like we see Ryan Johnson interrogating those tropes and and flipping them a little bit, because we expect and we've seen this in in maybe in time travel movies or science fiction movies or movies where um, a character just meets an older older mentor, (laughs) even if that character is not uh, him or herself in the future, Uh, that you have the young inexperienced person, then you have the old wise person, and the old wise person comes and knocks some sense into the young person. Heck, let's talk about A New Hope. While we're at it. I mean that same sort of (laughs) trope. We have an old we have an older mentor talking to a younger one and and trying to get them out of their foolishness or self centered ways. And that's what we think old Joe is doing, right? He young Joe just kinda wants to blow him off, ready to kill him, close his loop, and he ends up sitting around and saying, Well, I'm gonna you know, you're stupid. You've always been stupid. I'm gonna tell you about this person who saved who saves your life. Mm -hmm. And so we think that old Joe is, is genuinely being selfless, and then we see the lengths old Joe is willing to go to and uh, how irrational old Joe is willing to be. And we realize that that he's not. It's just selfishness dressed up in a fancier suit.
0: There's a glimpse that we get into young Joe's character later when he's talking with Sid about his mother. He says, you know, I, I never understood how she could get addicted to the drug she was on, but he eventually learned that it was because she was lonely and he sort of understood. And we sort of see a glimpse into his own current situation and why he's seeking companionship with Susie, Piper Perabo's character, and offering things to her just for that piece of companionship, for that piece of not loneliness. And so we we start to see the cracks as he's seeking something that he, that, that's more than himself, I think is a way of saying it. Yeah. Now, old Joe, as you said, it's like, not wolf in sheep's clothing, but it's dressing up selfishness in wanting to better the world. But really, it's just my wife was killed. I want her back, and that's that's the whole thing he's trying to achieve. Uh, young Joe says, "You know, if if your goal is to save her, then all I have to do is see a picture of her, and I'll walk away. I won't marry her. No problem." But then old Joe will selfishly miss will not have those memories with her that he cherishes so much. So it's this conflicting, is this right? Is this wrong? Obviously it ends up being wrong because of him chasing after the children. He believes to be the rainmaker and killing them in cold blood. But you, there are a couple moments in the film where it's like, okay, well, I don't know whether he is to be trusted, whether he is doing the right thing. Yeah. He's sort of doing the wrong thing, but his, does the end justify the means? Like it, it's this whole conflict in that character as well. Well, and
1: the the idea I feel like of doing a time travel movie, a time travel movie. You know, with time travel, the sky is the limit. You've got a right. whole world at your fingertips. You can do all of these things. And so, to make a movie that has time travel in it, that where a primary theme is isolation or loneliness, that's really cool. Um, And that that is a deeply woven thing. Like there are so many lonely characters
0: in in this movie, and Young Joe gets to meet another one later on. It blows my mind to see how how upset, how angry Old Joe is, and the length that he is able to go to do what he thinks is right. And I think that's something that's really interesting about his character. Is there's never like a redemption for him. There's never a moment where he realizes that what he was doing is The wrong thing to do. He always through the the beginning to the end of the film thinks that what he's doing is the thing he ought to do. We can go ahead and mention Sid at the, at the end of the film, when old Joe has a moment to, or the opportunity to kill Sid, Sid saves his life once, and then he chooses not to kill him twice and still old Joe stands up and is like, okay, this is the kid who's going to be the rainmaker. I still have to stop him because he exists. He's just so blinded by hatred, so blinded by grief at the loss of his wife that he just fails to see even the possible hint of goodness. And I I think one of the, it actually kind of made me tear up a little bit watching it this time, his anger, just exactly what this has driven him to when he just like completely decimates the gatman organization i mean that's like the typical bruce willis die hard moment is that scene yeah but it's also him just like wreaking havoc because of the loss that he suffered at the hands of this organization it's like the loopers were hostages to the people from the future and the gatman was the organization of the person from the future of Abe. And so by just like completely tearing it down and killing everybody in his sights, it's his way of seeking revenge. And I, I just thought that was a really powerful scene that I really hadn't considered until this watch through that that's him, not just taking out people in his way. It's, it's literally him seeking revenge for the, these people who took away his life and led him and created him to where he is today.
1: Mm-hmm. This is one of the few movies I can think of in recent memory, at least that, goes to great lengths to show revenge as not being sexy. Right, right. this is like the and I mean I enjoy, I, I very much enjoy the uh, the choreography and whatnot of of John of the John Wick movies to no mm-hmm. end. Um but this is not John Wick <laughs> at <Right. all. laughs> No.
0: Now what about Sid and Sarah? Sarah is one
1: of my one of my favorite characters because she is I don't know, I find her love for Sid to be very moving and genuine when you were talking about kind of experience with the film and this being a film that that has grown with me since having a kid, obviously my view of, of that relationship has uh, Sarah and Sid's relationship has, has grown and has changed. And I just find that to be just such a moving and very genuine relationship that brings a, in those moments brings a sense of tenderness and sweetness to an otherwise very harsh landscape. And at the same time, she's, She's a very lonely character, and her so so we've got another character who is lonely, who is isolated, and mm-hmm. part of that is just kind of is kind of is ex- exemplified in the in the way that she lives out there in the middle of nowhere by a cornfield mm-hmm. and her entire life is dedicated to protecting and loving this child. One thing that I think Ryan Johnson does in a lot of his films that I really love is that he writes scenes or moments that When we view them for the first time we may overlook them entirely or interpret them a certain way in the first time and then when we see the movie on repeat viewings we understand it in a more complete or fuller different sense so for example when sid has his his the first angry outburst he has and sarah goes to to cry and steps inside that huge vault i think maybe when you see that the first time you may not think too much of the vault other than hmm, maybe that that's interesting. Um, or she's just going in the first place she can get to sit down. But then once you see the movie again, knowing about Sid's powers and everything, mm-hmm. you see that not only is she there out of grief to just kind of get herself out of this situation, she's there to keep herself safe because that vault can keep her safe if he if he loses control. But her nevertheless, her love, her commitment to love him and raise him well kind of keeps her in that situation. And I just find that to be a very, a very moving thing.
0: Yeah, it's really compelling. And she, she's just such a, a heartbreaking character in a lot of ways. For so much of the film, Sid refers to her as Sarah because he doesn't believe that she is his actual mom. Yeah. Because Sid was raised by her sister because she lived the party lifestyle and didn't didn't do her due diligence as his mother or didn't have the ability to do that as his mother. And so now she has this child her sister's gone. The child killed her. We came to find out by accident. But now Sid doesn't believe that she's his real mother. She has such conflicting love and fear of her son within her. Uh, on the rewatch, you really do see how kind of genuinely scared she is of Sid in that scene that you were just talking about where he first gets upset and, and it's like a run and hide kind of situation for. Uh, to to save my own life, mm-hmm. and it's a little bit to protect Sid too. Uh, we see that Sid has almost this—I wouldn't call it post-traumatic stress—but he remembers the death of his his aunt. It turns out who he th- believes to be his mom, and he blames himself for that. He he says, "I wasn't strong enough. I couldn't protect her." And it's—he's just such a smart, kind child. And there's so much depth to those two characters and so much heartbreak to those two characters, too, because of the situation they find themselves in and the situation that it turns out old Joe is trying to prevent from happening in the future. And we see, by all evidence, this kid is exactly the person that Bruce Willis believes him to be. And we have reason to fear him, too.
1: Yeah, and he's a character who could very easily become what old Joe is, a person blinded by rage and hatred and past failures and determined to to protect those whom he loves at, at all costs. And that's the, there are no like clean, clear-cut answers here. Again, like we talk about like, there are some things that very, very obviously that old Joe does that are terrible and horrible and wrong, but there are times where we can't say that his, his I don't know, his ultimate concern that the child may become, still become the Rainmaker or something like that, we can't say for sure whether that is a wrong conclusion. And so we're left sort of this in this very conflicted state, I feel we're placed in a spot of tension where we have compassion for this kid. We don't want to see this kid killed. And yet we, yeah, we, we like the mother are in a spot where we can fear what this child
0: could become. I'm always drawn to children characters who are forced to grow up sooner than they should. And that that's definitely the case for this kid. He has this huge weight on his shoulders because what he, I mean, he killed his own mother or his aunt. Whether he knows that or not, he he blames himself. And then he feels the responsibility to protect Sarah as well. And then whenever he does have those instances where he is about to explode and is about to cause damage and is striking fear in people, he feels remorse for it too. Mm-hmm. That first scene uh, after Sarah has gone and hid and she comes back later, she she just comes to comfort Sid because, hey, yes, you scared me. Yes, I had to go protect myself and protect you from doing something that was going to affect you. But I'm still your mother and I'm still here to look after you and to comfort you. And the way he just sort of cuddles up to her and says, I'm sorry, is it's so sweet to to see this kid who knows that he lost control and feels remorse for it. And we see it again later when the Gatman, Jesse comes to take, young joe and to see sid get startled down the stairs and start to fall and joe goes to protect sid and sarah starts to run too and we think oh the mother's going to go and try and catch her son from the stairs but no she's trying to get joe out of the way because she knows what's about to happen and joe has this moment of freaking out you know like this kid really is exactly who my future self says he is and we do have to stop him. We do we cannot let this person become who he is destined to be. And he comes across Sid in the cane fields and he's covered in blood and he's on the verge of tears and he feels so sorry for what happened and that's just such that's not what you expect from a monster. Mm. It's
1: very, very touching. And like I said, that's one of the few instances in the film, maybe the only instance in the film where we see a, an actual functional relationship, uh, aside from maybe old Joe and his and his wife before she dies, but we see an actual functional relationship that's not hollow. All of the other relationships, um, you know, young Joe with uh, Piper Perabo's character, even Joe with Sarah, I feel like to a certain extent, like I don't necessarily interpret their um, their love scene as something that's just. Born out of an intense closeness as much as it is just two lonely people being together and trying to trying to create that closeness.
0: Right. Instead of being born out of closeness, it's born out of loneliness. Right. right? Like it's like these people are both experiencing that just complete isolation from the world around them in completely different settings, by the way. Joe is surrounded by people and he's partying and doing drugs every night. Sarah is completely alone, yet they are both feeling those feelings of isolation. So coming together it, it does Bring that that not not quite relationship to a head. Like, I don't know if they ever would have been married or whatever by the end of this if young Joe had survived. but it it does come from an interesting place, having both of those characters sort of on polar opposites of the same loneliness spectrum, yeah now, I, I I suppose the the biggest thing we have left to talk about is the the climax of the film at the very end when, the decision is made by young Joe to kill himself. What do you, what do you think about that? That's something that, or what's your reaction to that? I I still feel conflicted about that. No matter how many
1: times I view the film, it's something that you, um, I mean, somebody closes the loop and tries to interrupt that cycle of violence. Um, But it takes this act that is in and of itself heinous to do that. And so it's just this, it's, it's this deeply, deeply unsettling thing where there, this cycle of violence this cycle of selfishness and isolation is so persistent and so pervasive that there's not a clean exit that's something i don't see a lot of films like this do and it's something that's honestly kind of haunting
0: i feel it is haunting and you know something that i don't think i realized until this viewing is that joe's inner monologue that we hear right before he takes his life is a complete echo of what Abe said to him earlier in the film. It is like literally the exact same words. He said, I saw the future, I saw the path that led you down to bad. And so I closed it, I changed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I just don't think I clicked that had clicked with me until this viewing. And that's what I think is really interesting about it too is that we saw that what Abe did with young Joe is that he saw him as a savior. He says, I saw you in this lifestyle, I saw where you were heading, and so I put a gun in your hand, I gave you something that was yours, and I saved you from it, I put you on the good path. But then we see what would have happened had he actually closed his loop, he would have used all of his money on drugs, he would have almost killed himself, he becomes like a hitman, and... It, it just almost completely ruins his life until he meets his wife. But even that is ruined by this whole time travel thing and the closing of the loop when his wife is killed incidentally in that moment. So we saw that what Abe saw as an act of being a savior ultimately did not end up being that. And so with young Joe echoing Abe's words in taking his life to save Sid in this moment we have seen that promise before and it didn't turn out the way the promiser intended and so we we don't know that Sid is ultimately going to not become the rainmaker because of Joe's actions here and so i think that that doubt is really interesting at the same time that it introduces the hope that he might not become the rainmaker because of Joe's actions yeah and
1: having that Having that loving presence there of his mother, again, like you said, is not, a, is not a guarantee. We've seen characters in this movie like Old Joe, where they have a loving presence in their life, and when that's taken away or when it doesn't work out the way they think it's going to, then things still happen the way that they were going to in, in the beginning. But I like that it doesn't, as difficult as it is and, and haunting and unsettling and all of that as it is, I love that it doesn't give us that clean answer it gives us a glimmer of hope.
0: It does. Now, aside from like themes and like deeper stuff that I want to talk about when we get to that, are there any other characters that you wanted to mention or say anything about? I think I do want to talk a little bit more about that scene where uh,
1: Joe and old Joe are talking about in the diner because that's such a great scene. And it's another one of those instances of of Ryan Johnson sort of playing with tropes that we're used to. So when you got the uh the old wise character and the young foolish character together, I love I my favorite thing is Joe's line old Joe's line about not wanting to talk about time travel and having to diagram with straws, being there all day and having to draw diagrams with straws. <laughs> I that's great too. Because I feel like so many time travel movies Love monologues and expositions about how time travel works and how you can undo the space-time continuum and all that. And again, this movie just completely—not completely, but it—it it mostly sidesteps that in favor of focusing more deeply on its characters. And so it's the kind of thing where I feel like Ryan Johnson assumes a, a, a an intelligent viewer. He never insults the intelligent intelligence of his audience. This. I don't know. I feel like almost like this exchange between Joe and Old Joe uh feels like Johnson's saying to the viewer, you know, hey, you've seen enough of these movies. You know how it works. Let's let's do this. And then we have the un- the unseating of our expectations there. But I do love that it kind of pushes those things to the uh to the foreground or the, or the background, not the foreground. Even doing the thing like with the the first time we hear about TK is just in a billboard or something like that. And it's mentioned in voiceover. Um, and again, that's just kind of foreshadowing the, the huge role that it's going to end up playing in the film. But that diner scene is just fantastic.
0: Right. Abe has a similar line earlier, actually, uh, where he says, you know, this time travel crap, it just kind of fries your brain like an egg. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it does if you try to get too deep into it. And the thing about time travel movies is there's not a single one that doesn't have plot holes. Right. And when you try and like dig yourself out of that hole by just over explaining things, it, it doesn't help you at all. So I just like Looper's, I, I like Looper's introduction to time travel because it's just like time travel exists, it's created and it's immediately outlawed. And that's all we need to know about it. Yeah. It's used for illegal things. They send people back in time and that's that. Mm-hmm. Anyways, one more Abe line that I did want to mention just because it makes me laugh is that the whole exchange where, you know, young Joe <laughs> wants to learn French because he's going to go to France after he closes his loop and live out his life there. And Abe's, having this argument with him, he said, you should go to Shanghai. You should go to China. <laughs> right. uh, and he says, I'm from the future. You should go to China. Like, trust me, I've been there. I know what happens. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny.
1: Yeah. He's getting, it's like Biff getting the, <laughs> the almanac there.
0: Right. <laughs> he doesn't want to take it. <laughs> Well, before we get to the, the the really heavy hitting stuff, and I feel like we've already touched on some of it, too, but uh, do you have anything to say about Nathan Johnson's score for this? And I, I, I do want to say before I hand over the reins, having just seen Knives Out recently and it being the only Nathan Johnson score I'm familiar with, aside from Looper, I hear so much of his character in both of them, but he services both genres so well.
1: Yeah. We, we, I think we kind of joked about Nathan, jo- or you mentioned Nathan Johnson being the, the composer for Johnson's other films except for Star Wars, obviously. Right. <laughs> and I'm really hoping that if the, again, not to date us too much, but if Ryan Johnson gets to come back and make some more Star Wars movies, as we've been told, that Johnson will get to work on one. That'd be great. I think that'd be a great thing because I love yeah. the collaboration. And I'm re- I really, really adore this score in this film. I think it builds upon the work especially that that he did in brick, and Nathan Johnson, in this in this score for this score used a lot of found sound to create the mm-hmm. score, so he actually went to New Orleans and he recorded sounds he'd record like parades on the street, industrial fans, just anything he heard and I think he's I was reading in an interview he said that he took a lot of inspiration in doing that from Ben Burt, the famous mm-hmm. sound designer from star wars, so there's there's right. another Star Wars connection in there, but then he also use those sounds, those found sounds that he that he was able to, to get and record to kind of create instruments, if you will. And he he worked with Ryan Lott of the uh of the band Son Lux, which is a really awesome I, I love Son Lux, and that's a great collaboration. And and he turned those found sounds into kind of instruments and those are layered into the score. And again, that's another one of those things that makes this this thing just feel very unsettling from start to finish. Um, When you hear some instruments that you can recognize and then you hear this sound that you don't know where it comes from and it doesn't even sound like something in the natural world because it's, we're just so unused to having those kinds of sounds in our movies um, and it, make, it does make it feel very unfamiliar, very uncanny, like I talked about earlier. So I really like that. It's, yeah, and it's, it's, it's fitting. I don't feel like we've seen a lot of time travel movies where the score is so n- natural, so rhythmic and less orchestral. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's a nice touch.
0: Oh, yeah, that that completely. It you know, it's funny you talk about found sounds and all that kind of stuff because it reminds me a lot of Dave Porter's score for Breaking Bad was composed using just like laboratory instruments or laboratory devices or something mm-hmm. like that. That that's what it reminded me of was just the the Breaking Bad Mentality. I don't know. That's the, that's what came to mind. And so you talking about found sounds, uh, you hear that. You hear the industrial quality. I literally put that in, in the notes without having known that. I said it sounds like they pick things up off the street and turn them into musical instruments. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it just sort of causes. It creates this sort of midway between the present and the future. You know, you, you get the you get some of the the brassy orchestral stuff in the score every once in a while, but a lot of it is rhythmic and a lot of it is industrial. So. I really like that aspect of it too, but I do like that it's also sort of tender when it needs to be. A scene that comes to mind is when Sarah is talking with Joe after their their love scene about how she abandoned Sid when she was a young mom. There's this like heartbreaking piano and it actually reminded me a lot of Zimmer's time from Inception. Mm. And in the same sense that that piece had this sort of like the inevitability of time factor to it, it it gave me a sense of the inevitability of well I mean same thing I guess inevitability of time like what will pass will pass cause and effect is Sid on this predestined path to become the Rainmaker it you don't know but that, that sort of tension and hope and yet dread all at the same time are in that piano and I, I think that's really well done on Johnson's part yeah Well, let's talk about some themes, some deeper stuff, some relevance. Um, I I do want to, I'll start this one off if you don't mind. Yeah. (laughs) Because I think, I mean, it's definitely a commentary in a lot of ways on our selfishness and on our lack of outward compassion or or charity for others in a lot of ways. The loopers don't care who they're killing until it's them. I'm pretty sure young Joe says in one of his monologues that because it's a body that doesn't exist. It, it doesn't really matter. Like it's back in time. It's out of its time. It's now in hours. So when I de- deposit of it, there's no trace because that person does not exist, you know? And so it, it's that that cold, uncaring outlook on things that we see through a, a, a couple of the characters throughout the film
1: that idea of selfishness being the motivating factor behind almost all human action is so deep in this even down to the fact that they have to close their own loop there's embedded in that there's this idea that like if if you knew someone else was going to close your own loop you might kill that person to save yourself something like that so mm-hmm. them closing their own loop just keeps everything nice and tidy um and you don't have to worry about there being feuds and you know and in, in the current time, at least you're kind of isolating things and keeping everything, keeping everything as as safe as you can. But there's we've talked about so many of these things like isolation the- themes and motifs that that are repeated throughout this film. Maybe if I could focus on something that is slightly less pessimistic because I don't think overall this is this is an entirely pessimistic or a hopeless film. I really don't. No. Um, but there is this idea that I feel like this movie has a lot to say about love and the the power of love i sorry I felt it as as it was coming out I swear I'm not trying to make like huey Lewis and the news puns and get back to back, <laughs> back to the future I'm, I'm not doing that um but that like love is this truly formative theme that thing that shapes who we are like what or who we love actually changes who we are as individuals and at the same time and that can be a very great thing like like the love that Sarah has for Sid. That can be a great and a very pure thing, and we have that example in this film. But at the same time, it is so easy to convince and delude ourselves that we are doing something out of love when in reality our motives are much more self-serving and like old Joe is the exemplar of of this absolutely, where you know you feel like if his if somehow his his wife were able to talk to him, he would he would see the foolishness of his ways, but he has become so consumed by his by his grief and so hell bent on on his course of revenge that he's convinced himself that what he's doing is absolutely in the right. But I do like that this that this movie like posits love, charity, compassion, all of those things as incredibly significant and worthwhile, even if they are maybe more rare than we would like to think they are. Like love is not a cheap thing in this movie. Like I really think we only get that one That one sort of genuine expression of it between Sid and Sarah that we get to linger on at all in the film. And even that is fraught with difficulties and dangers. Like love is not a love is
0: not an easy thing. I think it's a a sort of two sided coin in this. There's, There's one side that says love and compassion is the way to a better world. But then the other side does say, you know, violence and hatred begets violence and hatred. Um, that's like the movie is called loopers and that's the loop that I focused on more this time rather than, you know, young Joe killing old Joe. It's you put violence and hatred into the world. There's going to be more violence and hatred and there's going to be more violence and hatred and it's just going to be a never ending circle. And that's what Joe saw in his moment at the end was that this act of violence against Sarah at the hands of old Joe is what creates the Rainmaker because hate and violence led to hate and violence. So Likewise, like I said, like you were saying, putting love into the world is the only way to stop it. So that I think is definitely a major focus point of the film. And this one, I want to get your thoughts on this because this comes from Kid Blue, who I didn't really expect to get sort of a takeaway from him. But I think it's really interesting, especially in the wake of Ryan Johnson's The Last Jedi. It's the idea of putting all of your identity and self-worth in the things that you're a part of rather than in yourself. Kid Blue seeks revenge on young Joe and old Joe at the very end of the film. Because why? Because they took out the bullies that never treated him right anyways. Like the whole film, we see that Kid Blue is sort of this obnoxious, Kid, This young guy in the organization who thinks he's all that. He thinks he's super cool. He's doing gun tricks. Everybody says, oh, you're going to shoot off your other foot because clearly he's shot one foot before. And it's just he's never treated well at all throughout the whole film. And then when he's finally free of these bullies. These Gatmen who treated him so poorly because old Joe killed them out of revenge. What does he do? Oh, well, now it's time to go kill those Joes because now this organization that I was a part of and I wanted to make Abe proud of me is gone. And so I sort of took that as like, obviously, this was pre Star Wars, so it's not a critique of that. But I do think it sort of plays into the idea of toxic fandom. These people who like a thing so much that they make it all about who they are rather than just being a thing that they like and so when something happens to that thing that they like they take it as personal offense and lash out man that's great
1: and and so yeah this movie goes to the work of showing that even if that thing is a good thing it can still be if you put too much significance too much weight on it um it can't support that weight and you'll still end up like bent and broken which is what old joe does with his wife like his wife as far as we know in the movie was a good person who really did clean him up and and loved him and cared for him and all of that but again like when when that is removed his his identity is so much in her that he he really has nothing else to live for other than avenging her death and writing those wrongs what he's what he sees as you know wrongs that's really good
0: Thanks. I, I was. I was like, "Is this a thing? Do do I am I getting this yeah, out of here?" I yeah. don't know.
1: <laughs> or even just this identity, like this idea of like identity and identity not being this fixed, this fixed thing, but it's kind of it's malleable. It changes. So we see that in the duality of Young Joe and Old Joe about them. You know, thinking that they're not the same person, but they end up really sort of being the same person, even in their differences. If that makes sense, they're they're still fundamentally mm-hmm. selfish, even if they're selfish in different ways. Right, (laughs) at their various points in their life.
0: (laughs) Any other like big takeaways from the film?
1: Not that I can think. Those were the ones I was going to hit on: love, identity, a duality. But there's there's tons packed into here. (laughs) Yeah. And again, ultimately, I feel like I feel like I made it sound like the film is more depressing. But I I I really don't see it like that. I've never come away from this film just feeling overwhelmingly like depressed (laughs) or hopeless or anything like that. But more just moved by the moved by the weight of what I have seen. There's a weightiness to this film because it it grounds everything in in characters. And so all of this sort of philosophical stuff is is buried underneath these interactions that the characters are having with one another. And I think that makes it really effective. It's probably what makes it what makes it um I don't know, more memorable in, in my mind. Right? It's it's different than just having a bunch of exposition or a bunch of monologues about the nature of love or things like that. Um, it's kind of buried into the narrative structure itself.
0: I never walked away from this film depressed either. I, I do think that the the ultimate message is one of hope is that even though it's it sort of, again, to draw the comparison to Inception, at the end of Inception, the top maybe topples. You don't know. It, it's ambiguous. And so I like that the movie, the ending of this movie is ambiguous as well. Yes, this guy was probably destined, this kid was probably destined to be the rainmaker. But as of this moment, he's a little boy being comforted by his mother because he was scared. And with that continued guidance from his mother at his side, as he gets older, hopefully he won't become the Rainmaker. And now that possibility is there because of Joe's actions. And so I, I do ultimately see that as a, a message of hope is give people the chance mm. to love. be Give people the chance to do good and to be good. Yeah. So... I agree with you. This is not a cynical movie. Uh, It it does present maybe a a cynical idea of the future. But then if that's the case, then it's sort of like the Matrix and young Joe is breaking out of it. You know, it's it's him saying, I don't have to live my life by these people's rules anymore. Yeah. Any closing thoughts on the movie or on Ryan Johnson? (laughs) (laughs) I will just mention one more thing that I that I really like that's uh,
1: somewhat trivial, but. I, there are a couple of shots of uh, cups of coffee and cream in coffee, mm-hmm. and there's just something aesthetically so pleasing about that. But at the same time, I, I, I genuinely do think that there's something about those shots in there that kind of speaks to the amorphous nature of all that's going on in here and how everything is um, sort of cloudy and indeterminate and all of that. But I don't know, there's just something about those coffee shots I, I think about like pretty much every time. I don't have cream in coffee very often. But if I do, oh, I don't either, <laughs> but if I do, I think about that or I think about getting cream, even if I don't, because of, because of Looper. So there you go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I most, I mean, as, as much as I love this movie, I do love this movie so much. I, I am very thankful for introducing Ryan Johnson to me. And now I'm, now that I've seen Looper again, it's the first time I've watched it in a couple of years for some reason, but it, it's been one of my favorites for a while and I've seen the Last Jedi, and I did rewatch the Last Jedi, and I just watched Knives Out, and I'm just so excited to tackle anything that <laughs> Ryan Johnson puts his hands on, whether that is another Star Wars trilogy, like please, yeah, <laughs> that would be so great, um, or it's just another standalone film, or maybe even a sequel to Knives Out, as it seems that we might be getting. Who knows? I am so excited for Ryan Johnson's future, and I'm so excited that. I think he's still relatively youngish, so he's he's gonna be making films for a while, I hope. Yeah. Yeah. Ryan Johnson's one of our, our greatest right now. Yeah. Well, I think that's the end of this episode of Cinescope. This was episode 79. Thank you, Blaine, for talking with me. You know, we we normally do the the Brad Bird movies. That's right. <laughs> and for some reason, when I was planning, okay, what would what do I want to talk about? Who do I want to invite for the relaunch of Cinescope? I was like, oh well, I wanna see Knives Out. And we can talk about Knives Out. Spoilers, we're going to talk about Knives Out. <laughs> oh, what pairs well with Knives Out? Looper, another Ryan Johnson. And for some reason, when I thought Ryan Johnson, I was like, okay, I got to talk with Blaine about this. And so I'm so glad that you were so eager to jump back in the recording chair with me.
1: I was so genuine, I mean, genuinely just very excited. Uh, I think I shouted something like, oh, yay, or something like that when I, when I read the message. Because um, I've been dying to talk about both of these films. And uh, yeah, it's great. Maybe we started a new tradition now. We have Brad Bird and Ryan Johnson.
0: Uh, Works for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, contact for this show, facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast. And you can also tweet the show at Cinescope pod on Twitter. Uh, Please go over to Apple podcasts, consider dropping us a rating, at least a rating, a, a review is even better and so is that subscribe button we would really appreciate it and that helps the show to gain popularity so that it gains visibility and that's what we want is a nice big audience to grow our film loving discussions Uh, you can also email the show if you have feedback or ideas that email address is the cinescope podcast at gmail.com now blaine you already talked a little bit about it but where can we find you online
1: you can find Home One Radio, the podcast, just anywhere you can find podcasts, Home One Radio. And then you can find me on Twitter at homeoneblaine and yeah, I'm usually talking
0: about Ryan Johnson
1: or Star Wars. So there you go.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I'm excited to talk Star Wars with you soon. Uh, I don't know if this is supposed to be secret. No, no, not it, at all. I, I've I've been on Home One Radio a few times at this point to talk about Star Wars music every time. Yep. And so I'm really excited to go on and talk about the music from The Rise of Skywalker uh, next week. So everybody check out Home One Radio always, but especially keep an eye out for <laughs> that episode yeah. where I'll be popping over. Yeah, for sure. If you want to follow me individually, you can follow me on Twitter at Chadadada. That is my favorite place to communicate with people. But if you want to follow my lack of Facebook updates, you can do that at facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. And the podcast is over, but it is still there to to listen to. If you did not ride the in American Workplace train, it is still on Apple Podcasts. So you can find that where podcasts can be found. You can find our website at workplacepodcast.com. And show notes for this show, contact information, if you missed any of it, can be found at the com. So thanks, Blaine, once again. I always love talking movies with you. I look forward to our next one. And I am just glad to be back with Cinescope. Yeah, thanks. Can't wait. Okay, thank you, everybody. Have fun and celebrate movies.